welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. John Stovell. And I'm Dr. Westovell. We are members of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Candace Smith, Claudia Herrera Montero, uh, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Dr. Ryan McAnally Lintz. Ryan is a systematic theologian and associate director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He works at the intersection of theology, ethics, and cultural criticism. His interests include, but are by no means limited to, theological ethics of humility, the place of eschatology in Christian thought and life, biblical theology, the philosophy of Charles Taylor, and understanding the work of his many teachers. Ryan co-authored Public Faith in Action, a publisher's weekly best book in religion in 2016. Congratulations, Ryan. Uh, with Marislaw Full, and he co-edited The Joy of Humility and Envisioning the Good Life. Um, his scholarly articles have appeared in Modern Theology, the Scottish Journal of Theology in Elsewhere. A native of Southern California with strong ties to Latin America and sensibility-shaping sojourns in both Buckinghamshire, England, and Hanover, New Hampshire, Ryan has made his home with only the slightest reluctance <laughs> in New Haven since 2008. Ryan is married to Heidi, and they have two children they worship with and serve at Elm City Vineyard in New Haven. And John and I have the pleasure of knowing Ryan for many years uh, through our connections with the Vineyard Association of Churches um, in the U.S. and in Canada. And we are really thankful for Ryan being able to join us today for this conversation. Uh, this conversation is going to have three sections or movements. Uh, we'll begin by discussing Ryan's scholarship. Uh, then we'll explore how this connects to Christian life and the life of the church. And lastly, we'll talk about what we call the marginalia. These are the uh, interesting personal questions that help us get to know Ryan a bit as a whole person. So while these marginalia are sometimes seen as other things, outside or separate from our academic lives, we believe that these aspects of our lives inform who we are as scholars and as people in important ways. So again, Ryan, uh, yeah, just welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Uh, yeah, we're just really glad to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Yeah. So let's get started with something simple. Tell us something about yourself that most people wouldn't know. Something about myself that most people wouldn't know. Here, I'll go for, it's a story uh, that I don't think I have shared on the kind of like infinite expanse of the web, uh, which is that uh, I once changed a dirty diaper uh, in the driver's seat of a car stuck in bumper to bumper traffic in downtown Lima, Peru. Oh my. Wow. Wow. All right. I hope diapers are like okay for this. Oh yeah, podcast. Totally. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I am curious to know more about the circumstances of that incident. <laughs> we probably shouldn't spend too much more of our time on it, but I'll tell you offline. <laughs> what, what What was the circumstances of Lima? How about that? Yeah. Um. So, uh, so my wife Heidi uh, works in uh, international development uh, and kind of anti poverty work and. We've had the opportunity to spend uh, months here and there um, in various places where her organizations have had country offices. And in one year, uh, we were in in Lima for uh, for a month uh, during the summer when I wasn't teaching or anything like that. Right. And so you were on baby patrol in this scenario. Uh, I was often on baby patrol. This was on our last day when we had checked out of our Airbnb and. Uh, <laughs> and we're driving around town in a rental car. Right. That is a, a great way to start. Um. <laughs> okay, now now turn this corner. 
<laughs> All right. Well, okay. So we know you grew up in Southern California. Um, so I'm wondering, so how do you think that shaped you, Ryan? And also, how has living in New Haven for the last number of years now shaped who you are today? That's a great question. I think I'm closer to the New Haven shaping because uh, it came at a time in my life where I was more conscious of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, New Haven, as I've experienced it, is dominated by uh, universities, in particular Yale. Mm-hmm. And um, there's uh, a certain sort of uh, hectic, just kind of like buzz that I think um, a university environment in our current social world tends to promote. And um, and I feel that, uh, I was going to say for better and for worse, but probably mostly for worse, been shaped by that kind of um, the uh, intensity of uh, of pace and the um, the extent to which you know universities academic culture is on the cutting edge of um, of the turn to like an attention economy. Mm-hmm. Um, recognition has always been uh, kind of the main currency uh, for scholars and there's um there's a there's a very intense version of that in the kind of yale shaped new haven that i've uh that i've experienced mm. um new haven's a small city but it's a city and so you see um characteristic traits of a Amer- contemporary american urban life kind of compressed down to scale um and i think that's another uh, another way that um, kind of sensibilities have been shaped over these last years is um, living with the tensions and fractures um, that exist in that sort of context. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back to Southern California, um, it still feels at a bodily level like home, like the smells of the LA area um, and uh, the dependable presence of sunshine feel like the, how the world ought to be. Um, but uh in terms of in terms of my thinking um it was uh it was pivotal for me to react against um the kind of caricatured understanding of my surroundings that i had as as a as a youth Mm -hmm. um and that was something that kind of propelled me into uh into thinking and and i think has given uh if there's a strand of if I can't quite get away from like cultural criticism as a, as a way of being in the world, um, some of that goes back to being like a not very popular kid in Southern California and grasping around for the kinds of things that must be wrong with the world around me, (laughs) uh, to help explain this life experience that I was going through. You know, um, I don't have this on the list of questions, but when you were talking about New Haven's hecticness and sort of that, maybe like the, the grasp of fame of the currency of fame. I wonder how that plays into the research and writing you've done on humility and whether, I mean, you're, you've been writing about humility in a context where that's a current, where fame is a currency. Has that played into any of those writings or the thoughts that have come into yeah. it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, um, that's just part of the background of, of being drawn and being drawn particularly to thinking about humility and recognition. Um, 
and mm. the the kind of the ways that we live in um in recognition economies that are structured in uh generally competitive ways uh and that tend to while promoting an ideal of authenticity um severely constrain the forms of um expression and achievement that actually receive recognition yeah and i would make a distinction between fame and recognition right because one of the interesting things about being in the sort of academic context that that i'm in is that uh fame could be a matter for a quite a bit of suspicion, right? There's almost like nothing a scholar can do that's that's uh, kind of more suspicious than get famous, <laughs> yeah. uh, right? Um, we're looking for a kind of a cooler sort of recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, uh, it's like in back in the day when like a, an indie band would get picked up by a major label, uh, yeah. right? Um, recognition is a complex thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh and so we live in these in these really cross-pressured fields of different modes of recognition uh and i think it puts a lot of uh it it makes humility hard mm-hmm. um and it makes uh thinking through kind of alternative uh alternative ways of uh giving and receiving recognition in our lives together a, a really important subject for reflection yeah, that's really thoughtful. I, it's interesting because I, I, it's a conversation I've had with a few other scholars actually on our podcast around what does what does the um, the place of the academy and the way we think about how we recognize people or what it means to do that? How does that shape what it looks like to be a scholar and what we choose to write and why we write it um, and who we write it for um, and who we're assumed to need to write it for? Um, yeah, anyways, it just, uh, it's really such important questions. Um, well, I think that's actually a natural transition to thinking a little bit about your scholarship, which I kind of already started talking to you about. Um, we are interested in thinking a little bit with you, um, to hear from you about your vocation as a theologian, um, and talk a little bit about the, the work that you've done and how you think about it. Yeah. So, uh, quite recently you've, uh, released, uh, The Home of God, a brief, Story of Everything, uh, co-written with uh, Miroslav Volf, um, which, by the way, I read and thoroughly enjoyed. Um, but I'm just wondering if you could make, briefly tell us about your work here and uh, and other work that you've done, and what brought you to this, anyway? Yeah, so um, the Home of God project is part of a broader program that I'm involved in with my colleagues at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture where we're uh, trying to help Christians articulate uh, a vision of flourishing life uh, as um, as creatures of God and uh, as creatures who are placed in our world today. Um, so I, when we set out, we didn't really imagine home being a key motif for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that arose early on in the process of we just created a long list of things that would be interesting to think about. And we initially kind of imagined them as maybe being chapters in like a two volume project or something. And home was one of those things, but it happened to come early on because we were 
stacking them more or less temporally, like in a human life cycle. So we talked about thought about birth and expectation a little bit, and then we're thinking about home and family and tradition as a kind of bundle of topics that are things that shape human beings uh, early in their lives. Um, and we really we were just kind of captured by the image in at the end of revelation of uh kind of the the new jerusalem coming down to settle on the new earth and the voice says behold the home of god is with humans Mm -hmm. and um and that started to be started to see kind of a thread that that ran through scripture and we started to feel that it had a kind of an important currency today. I think all all theology is contextual theology and I think our particular context called for deep reflection about home. It's it's in many ways uh a context in which home is either um felt to be problematic or or longed for and felt to be absent. Hmm. Yeah. Um I was interested in, you know, this book specifically we're, we're ch- going to chat about quite a bit, but I'm interested actually more broadly of how you came to do theology. Why um, would I do theology in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why? Um, I, why would somebody choose this? Um, um, it's not a good career choice, generally speaking. Um, and it makes conversation on airplanes really awkward. Um, <laughs> it does. It really does. <laughs> so, uh, I was not bound to be a theologian from early on. Um, I was uh, like a social science major in in college, um, economics, political science. Uh, wound up getting my degree in uh, international relations and comparative politics. Um, and I was I was on track towards kind of public service or. Um, uh, some sort of international aid work or something of that sort. And um, I found myself getting caught up in in questions that were upstream from the kind of questions that were uh, the focus of my of my work, uh, of my academic work as a student. Um, and uh, upstream actually may be the wrong the wrong image. Um, I found myself preoccupied with normative questions, um, with, with right. kind of ought questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found myself in an educational setting um, that was really, really good at helping you ask how questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and somehow over the course of um, the many kind of, intricate intersecting strands of uh developing life of faith and um these persistent questions um at some point in the over the course of college it's like well if i want to ask these normative questions for whatever reason it didn't occur to me to go to like the political philosophy section of the very department that i was studying in which i think probably would have been fine um and it's got to be theology mm-hmm. um and uh and kind of settled on that. And I have no idea how it came to be that I just automatically thought, well, I guess that means I'm going to get a PhD. Um, 
but that's it just kind of resulted that way um and then uh you know one thing leads to another and you're a theologian as, <laughs> as it happens uh that's that's a really interesting you know um it's fascinating because we ask the kind of question of like the history, how did you come to this to a lot of our uh, people we interview? And what I find is that very few people were like born and said, yes, theology <laughs> um, as like a starting point. Oh, can I- often, yeah. It, it often comes to that through something else. So. Yeah. Can I ask you, do they retrospectively mm-hmm. do people then can they kind of see it? Because if I then look further back, I'm like, well, as like an eight-year-old kid, I was lying in my bed at night, um, puzzling over the fact that I simply couldn't imagine uh, an end to everything, mm-hmm. um, nor could I imagine an endless everything, right? Like I, I was kind of plagued by these sort of uh, these questions that push out at the limits of mm-hmm. um, like intelligible questions and the, and the, the sort of things that wind up fitting with theology, but it was never like, and you might do this, you might invest your life in this until that kind of college process that I narrated. Yeah. Yeah, I think it depends on the person and what kind of theology they do. Sometimes it's someone like me for like a biblical theologian or a biblical scholar, you know, um, I fell in love with languages and it was this combination Mm. of like language and scripture, language and scripture that just kept, and culture, and just being fascinated with those questions. And I can date that, I don't, I mean, I can date that back pretty much to when I was really, really little, and I had all these big questions. And I was the kid who would always hang out after church. In fact, I was the only girl who would hang out after church, all the guys would hang out <laughs> after church to talk with a youth leader about like something about the Bible. And I would hang out. And um, at one point someone's like, do you just like the guys? And I'm like, no, I like the conversation. I want to talk about these questions. And so, um, but I think for others, it's, you know, it, they come to it from a question in their own life or context that presses them into theology. Um, and then that seems to form like who they are, what they become. Um, so I just think it's really interesting the journeys we take to get here. So, mm-hmm. um, well, I'm going to go back to the book for a sec, um, particularly Home of God. Um, and then you mentioned that this is part of a series. What I think is interesting is when you have a book in a series, but you could possibly read it alone. And I'm interested in what you think the experience might be if someone was reading this book by itself versus if someone reads it in the series and then how do you see this book fitting more broadly with other things you've written on um not in the series per se but like just in your own research yeah so this is the second book in what you're calling the series um the first is Matt Crosman and, and Miroslav's uh, For the Life of the World. Um, and this wasn't planned as a series, right? This um, this just, it, it, it's kind of happened. And I think uh, because of that, you can pick up any of these volumes and read them. Or I said, should say either. Um, God willing, it will one day be any. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh and they're they're all they all kind of stand alone. Um, but what we're hoping they'll present as a as an overall picture is a kind of um, an example of a way of doing theology that draws it 
close to human life in particular times and places mm. uh, in a sort of deep and living dialogue with um, scripture in particular, um, but then also various voices from the history of Christian faith and life um, and um, and various currents in our world today. Um, and if you pick up the home of God and read it uh, kind of first and on its own, um, my hunch is that that some of those elements won't be fully to the fore, um, that uh, the picture is not quite complete. Uh, now, the picture is never going to be complete, right? The uh, theology is a kind of inherently incomplete discipline yeah. uh, in that um, there's no such thing as a, an exhaustive accounting of uh, the living God. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a brief uh, story of everything. <laughs> um, well, I mean, so, so what do stories do? Stories, yeah. stories leave out because they narrate, right? Stories yeah. are inherently selective. Um, and, um, and so we want to push against the idea that, that, um, everything is a story, um, that, that kind of narrative logic is somehow ontologically definitive like it it's it captures how things are but we want to say everything is story like enough that that when you tell when you tell the story right when you when you kind of pick out elements and and give an arc uh that runs uh from the beginning of the creation to its fulfillment in god's coming to dwell uh uh among us and within us mm -hmm. uh in a redeemed and healed creation uh that you're you're not kind of denaturing the world by plotting it in that sort of way um that you you can do that sort of thing um but that's not the only thing that you can and ought to do um but i mean even if you read this you'll realize that we left out most of the the creation stuff um <laughs> uh that turns out that's going to be the next volume. And we left out most of the, the kind of careful attention to our world today, which I think is an, an essential feature of, um, of a kind of complete theological stance. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think you, you reading on its own, which I mean, you can't read the whole thing all together yet, right? My hope is that someday you'd be able to piece those all together. As it is now, it's hopefully suggestive of directions mm -hmm. and can kind of spark an imagination for thinking about um, contemporary questions of of home and belonging and things like that. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting because um, the book with uh, Matt and Marislav, um, the first book, um, it was an important, important part of uh, foundations for an article that I got to work on around human flourishing and poverty alleviation. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that in the poverty alleviation conversation, you have this whole discussion around like the role of home um, and its impact on how we understand, you know, what, what happens in poverty um, and, you know, how's that related to the idea of home. So it was really interesting when this, when I saw this book come out, I was like, oh, this is so interesting because these were some of the questions when we did apply that first book in a modern setting and, you know, practical theology mm. setting, um, these were questions that arose. And so it's interesting to have this next book 
that fills in some of those theological questions that really actually we were kind of wrestling with ourselves. Um, and so I was really just thankful for that, um, that even though it doesn't have as much um, that is directly trying to answer um like sort of that, those contextual questions in that way, that it seemed to me like it fit in that. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciated, I mean, you've actually brought it up twice already, the sort of the focus on that final vision of the new Jerusalem coming coming down and God making his home uh, in the world as kind of giving us this picture of, so what is God trying to do with the world, helping to set up that? So this is kind of the goal that apparently God is aiming for. Um, and what I appreciate so much about this book is the way you sort of tracing that through different biblical passages and different major parts of the story uh, to show us that because it helps to, I suppose, orient before we get to those more practical questions, um, helps us to orient. So what are we trying to do? What is the big question behind it all? The upstream question, as it were, uh, that uh, God, what is God trying to do? Because uh, that will orient us as we're trying to deal with those more practical things of the outflow, right? So that's just one of the things I really appreciated in the book. Um, of course, along the way, there's, you know, uh, some things that are rather important and how we get there. Um, in particular, uh, I enjoyed your conversation about the incarnation. And so I just wanted to uh, basically ask you a question to invite you to elaborate on that for us. So why the incarnation? Uh, so why did God become human? Please just talk to us a bit more, Ryan, about the way you think about it and how uh, people can, uh, what they can expect as they look at the book. Um, and yeah. Follow on that. If we were to imagine a world where sin had never happened, so would the incarnation still have happened, and why? Uh, however. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, those are. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Just uh, a little bit. <laughs> just some, some little questions uh, <laughs> with absolutely no history in the theological tradition. Whatsoever. Oh yeah. No, nothing at all. <laughs> um, sure these are have no load whatsoever. <laughs> so, I, so yeah, I take it you you have posed the question that most famously posed by Anselm of Canterbury in, in Cordeus Homo, uh, why did God become human? Um, and uh, and then you've paired that with what in our technical systematic theology speak is called the question of superlapsarianism, whether the incarnation is, is kind of uh, decided upon uh, outside the frame of the fall or kind of uh, granted the fall. Um, I'm fairly convinced it's a mistake to answer Anselm's question only with reference to sin and redemption, um, which is to say, um, it doesn't seem to me quite right that God became human, uh, simply because we screwed up and couldn't deal with it ourselves. Um, uh, likely true in some sense that we screwed up and can't deal with it ourselves um that seems <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure fine let's grant that um but uh but it seems like there's a surplus like there uh, um uh it doesn't seem to be simply a matter of of kind of like picking up some things that fell down and setting them back up again um there seems to be um a drive in um in God's work in incarnation and in the sending of the spirit uh, towards uh, a different sort of relation, a relation of, of um, dwelling among and dwelling within. Miroslav and I also then we kind of draw that line and then also suggest, um, you know, another common way of, of thinking about why God became human is uh, 
oh, I think there's a patristic formula that goes so far as to say, uh, you know, God became a human so as to make humans gods, um, to make us divine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, deification uh, has been a, a very popular kind of theological idea over the last couple decades. And um, and there's there's something deeply right about this, that the sharing of God's life with us is is integral to to what God seems to be up to in the incarnation. Um, but uh, I worry that the, the emphasis falls too much on a kind of uh, uh, assumption direction. God assumes humanity in Christ. Um, and, uh, and I think it's more God enfleshes God's self in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which isn't to say that humanity doesn't get transformed or that we don't have connections through the spirit that wind up being radically transformative eschatologically for uh, for who we are and ethically for how we ought to be today. Um, but simply to say, I think um, I think this kind of this homemaking image um, better captures uh, certain key dynamics of God's kind of the the kind of uh, downward and inward sort of movement as it were of God's work and um, and captures them in language that's particularly vibrant for our cultural context today, or at least some of them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, interesting as you're talking about the incarnation, and I've been, I was thinking about tracing the idea of God's presence and how we experience God's presence because your book on the home of God is so much in many ways about the different kinds of experiences of God's presence and how there's a a mirror to that of God as home. Um, And so, you know, in biblical studies, a lot of times we'll kind of do this tracing and we'll talk about, you know, God in the cloud, you know, in uh, Exodus into the tabernacle picture, the idea of the temple, and then Jesus tabernacling with us, that God with us through Christ, which obviously you guys were talking about in terms of the incarnation. But we also get this picture of God as um, as the temple who is in and with his people. And the book of the the book ends with that picture of God with his people as taber- as kind of that uh, that home picture. Um, but I'm really interested in a step that, you know, you can't talk about everything, but there's this fascinating step that when I do the like this, then this, then this around temple, we talk about this one spot, particularly in Pauline and Johannine theology of the temple as God's people. Um, and I'm interested in, um, in this question of home and how that might connect to, um, so to, do you see the people of God as God's home in some way? and people making their home in God as a community. Is that a part of where you might, like, would you add that as a step? Is that a part of the trajectory of the book or of the ideas? Just because it's a piece that I know with temple language we talk about, but I don't know if you'd see it as a, like a connection with the picture of home. Yeah. Um, I haven't put as much thought as I need to eventually into, um, the the Pauline and Deuteropauline strand of thinking that's that's relevant here. Um, my inclination is to say um, that that's going to light up other aspects of the reality of this of this homemaking work of God. Hmm. Um, where I'm 
I'm always a little bit suspicious of theological moves that um, take the image of Christ as temple um, and the uh, say then you get the the Pauline uh, thought that uh, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the, uh, the kind of building and home images that you get in, uh, some of the epistles, um, and put and merges those together into a kind of picture of the church as the continued incarnation of Christ. Mm. Um, I just think it, I just think it overplays the church, uh, (laughs) Um, I don't like, I'm not sure I can come up with, you know, better technical phrasing or an actual argument just off the cuff here. Um, but, uh, I'm inclined to, to talk in terms of us participating in God's homemaking work in the world and being kind of sites of the homemaking of God. Um, yeah. not simply as individuals, mm-hmm. um, definitely as communities. Um, many of which communities you might call church, mm-hmm. um, but probably not all of which. Um, and uh, and, it, and if I could push your suggestion kind of in that direction, that I yeah. that I would be, I think, inclined to go to go along with it and and to say that's a, an important complementary piece that hopefully would be able to highlight more in a kind of future work on what we call like the ethics of homemaking in an unhomed world, uh, uh, which is, which is a little bit where we're, where we're driving. So if this is the big picture, as you were saying, John, if this is, this is kind of um, the arc within which we're, we ought to be doing our imagining um, then what does, what sort of practices, what sort of forms of life today uh, might result um, yeah. I wonder if the creation side that I know you're going to be working on will help with that, because I think a lot of what we get in Paul's discussion also plays into this bigger picture of like God in, in creation, um, that stands alongside God in the church. And so I wonder if that, I wonder if that like fleshing out the God, the cre- creation and as home peace um, and God in creation and homemaking um, will then play into how we see the New Testament vision of that. Cause it seems to me like there's some, some really cool connection pieces that could be there um, with some of Paul's language, like how we are um, we are with creation groaning and engaging God engaging in the created world, not just in with us. And so anyways, that's just me thinking about it, but I love that there's more coming that I get to read and talk to, to learn more about where you end up going with this. <laughs> so, Well, I just also wanted to say, I, I very much appreciate your uh, wanting to make that distinction and not overplay the church, uh, the role of the church there. Um, I tend to think somewhat similarly uh, to you in that regard. Um, I know I found it helpful sometimes just to remember, well, put it in simple terms, you know, we can talk about, you know, well, Christ in our hearts. Sure. Yes. Christ dwells in our hearts. Scripture says so. But if we start with thinking about it, of course, I mean, I don't have a tiny Jesus in literally inside my heart. I mean, he is currently incarnate, still now in his own physical body. When we say that, what we mean is via the Holy Spirit, Christ is with us. And I think, I mean, putting it concretely, we're like, you know, that's 
pushing it to the pushing through almost silly, but if we step back a little bit, it's still worth remembering, no, the spirit is among us now and dwelling in us. And that that is very helpful for us to to remember that when we want to, if we feel tempted to lean too far forward. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, you just made me think of that. I'm not quite sure where, if that led to a question right. exactly. Just no, I, I, I like the idea. Uh, <laughs> but it gives me an opportunity to say, yes, that's a, that's exactly um exactly how I've wound up thinking about the the kind of presence of Christ. Um I mean, let's bracket for a section uh, a second the the ascension, which is just like one of the hardest doctrines. Yeah. Um and uh and say um, but the picture we get, like the Johannine picture, he's, uh, you know, um, the father and I will come and make our home in them. Mm -hmm. Um, how, uh, via the spirit, right? Oh. Because, um, there's this Trinitarian dynamic where, um, the persons are inseparable. Um, and so to say that, that, um, that the spirit is given to us, um, is to say that Christ and the father are given um uh in and with the spirit in the same way that the father was with the disciples um and the spirit was upon him and thus also with the disciples during jesus earthly ministry mm -hmm. the trinitarian theology is important there we go <laughs> <laughs> uh so actually uh just can, can ask you another question now the right so like i said i really enjoy this uh the image of the home of God and really like what you've done with it. But I'm wondering if you can tell us more how you understand the idea of the home of God in relation to like other common metaphors. So I know in the vineyard tradition, uh, you know, pretty common to talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, it's very, very strong and important uh, uh, image used. So how do you see uh, this kind of imagery, like for example, kingdom or other important images, um, in relation to the image of the home of God, um, which is what you've chosen to focus on this book. How do you see the interaction between home and these other kinds of major images? That you see? Yeah. Um, I'm inclined to think that no, no single metaphor or kind of set of imagery is ever sufficiently um, kind of exhaustively uh, sufficient, ah, sufficiently exhaustively sufficient. One, yeah. You can't do everything with just one, uh, you can't just play one note would yeah. be a, a kind of musical metaphor for it. Right. Um, you, uh, but you want to accentuate different, uh, different notes, uh, for different reasons at different times. Um, and some of them, are just kind of more central to the key that the whole thing is in than others. Um, uh, I don't know that we're ever going to like find the root and be like, it's all about this. But what we're saying is um, play the tune in the key in, in the mode of home mm -hmm. and some interesting things will result, mm -hmm. right? It won't leave you with this dissonant hole um, and it will, it will, it will spark things. It will sound uh, chords that resonate with certain features of our world today and that resonate with other aspects of the story that, that might get downplayed in, uh, if you're kind of only just like hammering home on say kingdom, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, kingdom will tend to emphasize a certain sort of regal distance, um, 
uh, of God, right? Um, a certain sort of power over. Um, and the way that the kingdom image works itself out in scriptural witness and in some of the better theology that's out there um, is uh, there's a sort of resistance to that and undoing of it in some cases, right? You wind up getting um, these images in uh, in Revelation where it seems like everybody's reigning, like mm-hmm. over what, right? Um, there doesn't, it, the kind of like reigner and reigned over distinction starts to to pull apart. Um, God doesn't appear quite as much as, as the kind of, um, the coming conqueror that you might get in some kingdom language, especially kind of vineyard inflected kingdom language, which is about this inbreaking. It's got a kind of, um, which can, again, there are strengths there, right? It can play up a certain sort of, um, reality of the ways that the world as it is, is kind of out of joint with, uh, uh, with God's intentions for the world. Um, home, I think then can come in as a complementary, as a way of articulating what we might mean by the kingdom of God. Um, uh, God's kingdom is a kingdom where all are at home, uh, which is to say all belong, all are attached to one another, all resonate with one another. Um, and, um, and so I, I think theology theologians have the responsibility to to kind of work imaginatively and and with the best wisdom they can muster for which of these sort of uh, images to play up. And the risk, of course, is that you fall into ones that are um, that are kind of particularly suited towards um, the particular kinds of sin that are extant in your heart and your world, <laughs> uh, right? Um, when Anselm thinks of God as a feudal Lord, that actually like it shows something true. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, this is not like a totally unworkable sort of image, yeah. but it's also suspiciously like really good at sort of shoring up a certain sort of social philosophy that seems to me out of joint with other aspects of God's work in the world. Yeah. You know, we, nice were, <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this um, recently because we, 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 you know, travel around talking about kingdom of God and, and, and it's particularly some discussions about suffering in the kingdom of God and how do we think about it. And one of the conversations that came up was when a context with indigenous people where the language of kingdom and colonizing and that language has like it plays right into the sins of our countries, right? Of the US and of Canada. And home actually, I think, could provide a different way of coming at that, which I think could be really powerful. Um, and so I think I think that that is incredibly helpful. Um, so we're we're just gonna con- transition into what we consider the second part of our uh, our talk today. Um, and that, I mean, we've already been talking a little bit about the church and Christian life, but these questions kind of lean harder into that side. Um, and so, yeah, let's get started with that. Yeah. So actually one of the things that you just been uh, answering my, our last question there was uh, uh, that I want to come back to is, Ryan, can you talk a bit more about the questions of inclusion and exclusion um, and the way that you think about God making his home in creation? Because, um, I mean, even as you talk about in the book, I mean, we do see tensions about this in some, you know, along the journey that you take us through throughout scripture there about people being included and excluded to make the home that, you know, some people are initially designated as sort of being God, the people that God particularly dwells with and making a home with versus other people who aren't. And there's sort of an inside and outside there. 
Um, so how does, and then you, know, you talk about how that plays out as it goes. So I'd love to hear you just elaborate that bit for us. You can talk more about that. Yeah. And this is one of the, the real risks of home language. Um, I take it that generally speaking, homes have some sort of boundedness to them. Um, there's, there is some, uh, an inside or an outside I hear and not there, um, to them. Um, and there are people who belong fully in the home and people who belong somewhat in the home and right. Um, so in, in the kind of the metaphorical repertoire you're drawing from when you, when you start to think about home raises precisely the kind of questions that you just, just brought up. Um, there is, I think, something of a double-mindedness in scripture um, that plays itself out in the history of Christian thought uh, with respect to um, that boundedness um, of God's home. Um, It's there in um, that kind of edge in the Johannine literature um that that seems to want to draw pretty sharp boundaries between those who are in the community and those who are out in the world mm-hmm. um on the flip side god so loved the world mm-hmm. um uh, and uh exactly not just some of it um you've got jesus is saying and john about uh other sheep Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's really enigmatic stuff that doesn't, you never get to fully, um, if I think if you're, be, if you're kind of reading in good faith and, and, and like, um, you, you never get to fully close down. You don't get to complete closure on the, the kind of happy with an inside and an outside that has clear boundaries and people stay on one side of those boundaries or the other. Um, uh, Neither though is there like a an easy kind of uh, like cosmopolitan universalism to be drawn out of this picture, right? Where everything is the same, everywhere is the same, everybody's always on the inside because there is no outside. Um, you know, right on through to uh to to Revelation, uh right, Revelation 19 and 20 have some pretty stark stuff. Um now that stuff fades entirely from view over the course of 21. Um, uh, but it crops back up in 22. Um, and, uh, and I don't think you can really escape that dialectic. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it sets before us, a, a task, um, which is to, uh, ensure that, um, that we don't think of ourselves as like um as the like private security system of God's home. Oh, right. right. Wow. Uh yeah. Where our job is to kind of uh sound an alarm and I mean not to get too pointed about it, but call in like the lethal force of uh some private company or the state mm-hmm. when somebody who doesn't belong is in here. Um and yeah. Too often, um, 
too often that strand that suggests kind of boundedness mm-hmm. uh, leads us not to think um, that the kind of uh, Miroslav and I end the book with a, a reflection on on the distinction between Babylon and the New Jerusalem in in Revelation, and with the observation um, that that the kind of Babylon Jerusalem distinction is not a distinction between people but within people. Um, and, um, and so the first order of business, I think is, is, um, to try to live in such a way that one might become, uh, that one might truly belong in God's home. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. That's something we talk about in wisdom literature. Sometimes when you read wisdom literature can sound like there's those wise people over there and over on the other side, there's those foolish people. And one is life and the other is death. But one of the things that is actually the point of wisdom literature and other writing like it is that actually the line of who's wise and who's foolish runs down the middle of every one of us. Um, and so that part, that discussion of like, what does it mean to be included and how do we think about inclusion is part of that conversation um, as well. Um, I, you know, one of the things the book talks about at the beginning as, you know, some of the some of the struggles with the metaphor of home um, can be those who've experienced home in painful ways. Um, and I'm interested in this big question, how does God as home, what does it do for us as Christians? But I wonder if, I'd love to hear you answer that, but alongside it, I wonder what does it do for those Christians whose home was not safe or home was a painful place? Um, how does this metaphor work for them? Um, and and how do we how do we honor people where home is a, a good picture and honor people who where home was a destructive or painful picture? Yeah. So Miroslav and I were fairly acutely aware of this dynamic as we were working on the book and of the particular complication um, that both of us have uh, been fortunate enough to have mostly kind of mostly good home associations. Um, And so we've tried to think and write in ways that are honoring to the reality of quite different experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, my hope is that um, there is something here um, that is good news uh, Mm -hmm. for people for whom those experiences are definitive Mm -hmm. um but i don't know that i can say how that would work um that's 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 kind of in the mode of of hope and then at this point i think it's um you know it's time for us simply to listen and hear as people read the book how it works and doesn't um and and to take that into account as we continue to think with this image or not, right? Um, uh, if it turns out that we just haven't figured out a way to speak in ways that might register as um, as life giving um, to those who have had, uh, for whom home has been uh, a place of languishing and and pain, then we may just need to give it up. Um, and I think that's that's like a live possibility. Well, you know, I, it's one of the things that um, we deal with when it, with almost any metaphor that we use, because if we use a metaphor of marriage, if you've been divorced and, you know, then that's a painful metaphor 
And yet it offers potentially hope. If you use the language of father of God, I mean, we, we can't really get away from that language. And yet it's one that we almost always have to nuance because not everyone's experience has been the same. And so one of the things I think is interesting is how scripture uses these powerful metaphors that speak so deeply, so intimately to us because they speak so intimately to us, but also because of that, almost because of the intimacy, it's also the place where you're always kind of leaning into um, Mm. potential spaces of pain alongside potential spaces of hope. And, you know, I know that for some people, actually, a book like this might help them actually to see home in a way that was what they wanted home to be, which I think could be really powerful for, for a lot of people. Um, because there is a sense of, of hope for what home could be, right? Um, that is a part of the book. So, I mean, may, may it be so. Um, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> um, I, I just really quickly want to highlight an important point that I think was implicit in what you were just saying um, was that there's no such thing as pristine language. Mm-hmm. Um, there there's just no form of speech that we could find um that would not be prone to hurt um in the world as we as we know it the language as we have it um you're right kind of every metaphor um has um not just destructive potential but every metaphor has been destructive Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no way to put perfect guardrails around it such that your use is guaranteed not to be destructive. Um, we're just like, we just don't have the capacity to be sinless um, yeah. in our speech, in our silence, in anything. Yeah. Well, that leads naturally into the role of the Holy Spirit pretty well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so in this context of thinking about home and what it means and particularly focusing on, so what is thinking this way mean for our Christian life today. So tell us about the role of the Holy Spirit in Christian life, uh, thinking in terms of God making his home with us. Gosh, that's massive. I know, um, I know. We I know. ask the little questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> Incarnation, Holy Spirit. <laughs> you don't have to give a, a complete pneumatology right now. Just some thoughts. Okay, thank, thank you for that permission. Your idea of home. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I think we take the risk at some point in in the book of using the phrase, the age of the spirit. Um, and, uh, that's, I hope we don't like fall into Joachim of Fiore territory. Um, (laughs) let those who understand, understand, um, uh, but the, the spirit is crucial to whatever it is that this strange, painfully long form of life that is life between the resurrection and ascension and Christ's return uh, in glory and the coming of the home of God in the form of the new Jerusalem is mm-hmm. um, the shape that takes the texture of life uh, with the spirit um, of life opposing the spirit, which I assume most of us are doing a lot of the time, um, ignoring the spirit, all of this stuff is, um, is beyond what I can, what I can talk about right now. It's, it's, um, 
it's the kind of it is the texture of the life that we're that we're trying to live and understand as best we can right now um and um i suppose i can say uh i'm pretty sure that involves a lot of earnest prayer um some of which will be the spirit praying on our behalf mm. yeah it sounds like you're almost like what i'm sort of picking up also what you're saying there it's like the life of the spirit with us is almost sort of setting the like the the pattern of life of the home of god as it were that's yeah yeah that's that's a good that's a good way of putting it um but we're never going to like fully get that pattern um and we're certainly never going to fully live it um like this side of the sort of radical transformation for which i hope yeah oh such a beautiful picture um well we're going to move to the very last section of the show what we call marginalia um, and these are kind of our fun questions. They're usually relatively fast questions, um, just to get to know you a bit more of as a person. Um, and, um, and so let's get started with that. All right. So, Ryan, I would love to know, when you are relaxing and goofing off, what do you like to do? Um, I, I really like board games. I like poker mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, I don't play it as <laughs> no, um, <laughs> not, not so great. Um, but it's uh, yeah, I, I I love I love games. Anything that can give you a a little like defined world in which to uh, in which to play and have like um, a structure for a social interaction, oh, yeah. I'm there for it. Awesome. So, what's your favorite movie, film, or it could be a TV show? What makes it great? Um, I'm really bad at favorite questions, but I will highlight this one. Um, <laughs> here, here's one: um, uh, a movie that is uh, has been of surprising theological significance for me is The Big Lebowski. Oh, um, oh yeah. And uh, what makes it great um, is that um, all of the um, the wittiness and the absurdity notwithstanding uh it's basically a story of some deeply imperfect people uh trying to be friends mm. uh, yeah. and uh and failing in in profoundly beautiful ways um and sticking with each other in profoundly beautiful ways that's mm. awesome oh, nice yeah oh that's really good okay um if you could describe yourself in three words, what would they be? That is a brutal question. <laughs> <laughs> I will say sometimes it helps uh, to think of like well, how others might describe you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how self-critical do you want me to be? <laughs> <laughs> if it helps um, three disconnected words, it doesn't have to be a sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, nerdy has to be one of them. That's okay. that's a, that's a basic. So I'm I am um, I like it good so far. I am uh, I'm nerdy. Um, I am uh, here. We go. This is this. Well, contest is two words. I think because there's a hyphen Perfect. involved. Painfully self-aware. Ah! Uh, right. Wow. Good. Okay. And so asking you to talk about yourself. That that that. Sorry, we were brutal. <laughs> um coffee or tea with any three figures living or dead and this has to ex- exclude jesus or paul because 
it kind of because it makes it boring yeah Yeah. well and then everyone's like oh i should just said jesus um who would you choose if you had three different figures um living or dead that you could kind of have coffee or tea or a nice meal with together and why okay let me ask (laughs) is sequential possible or do they have to fit together you however you want to it's your this is your marvelous imagination yeah because i'm like i'm really attempted to include james baldwin but that um but that could make for some serious fireworks in a lot of settings. And I'm, I'm yeah. a very conflict avoidant. So like, they could be separate. <laughs> yeah. So I could have tea with three different people. It would always be tea uh, for me at least. Um, and uh, I think, I think Baldwin might be one of them. That would be just astonishing. Julian of Norwich would mm. be one of them. Yeah. Um, and um, who's, who's another good one from that past i i would love to get to spend some more time with jürgen moltmann i don't know i'd like um i've had the chance to meet him uh just very briefly Mm -hmm. um but yeah uh 1970s jürgen moltmann would be would be near the top of the list is i think he would be a fascinating conversation that's awesome. Right. I will say, um, Julian was on my list when we we had to, we had to, we asked each other these questions. And, uh, <laughs> I always thought, well, you know, I imagine I'm like talking to her through a window, so it's just the two of us. <laughs> um, so that's true. Um, you don't get to have tea parties in Julian's anchor hold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. not really hanging out with the anchoress inside her little face. Um, <laughs> yeah, that could be interesting. Although, it could be quite interesting. Yeah. Anyway. All right, so another question for you, Ryan. So you suddenly find yourself thrown into your favorite Dostoevsky novel. It's always hard to say. Dostoevsky. Anyway, so in his novel, so what sort of character are you? I think that I am the kind of... um, Oh, gosh. So in Dostoevsky, there, there are often these characters who are um just they're they're a little like out of touch with the the like the main thing that's going on mm-hmm. um and uh and they usually have a fairly high degree of social standing um but not a very high degree of social standing um they're they're like um you know a captain in the military or something or like a lower level noble or something like that um and they're a little ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I think I, I think if I'm being honest, of all the Dostoevsky type characters, I'm probably going to be one of those guys. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Oh my goodness, Ryan. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, I hope the next one we give you isn't really, really hard because I think some people find this one hard. Um, what's the, the best compliment you've ever been given and why did you think it was a great compliment? Oh, that's such a lovely question. That's the sort of thing that I should just like have in my heart at all times, because wouldn't life be great if you paid enough attention to those sort of things? I'm going to be totally honest with you. I have a really hard time like all the things that are coming to mind right now are, are things that kind of um, that fit 
the kind of self-effacing shtick that you have just seen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then there are occasionally think of I guess other things come up like professional stuff that that seemed like great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it'll be until like tomorrow that I actually remember. Um, what has really mattered, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, because that's a, that's a different sort of thing. This is actually getting at, sorry, to bring us back from marginalia to like the, the heart of the conversation, mm-hmm. the stuff we were talking about, about recognition early on, yeah. right? Cause what is, what is the best compliment? The best compliment is one that recognizes, uh, a place where you are um, most thoroughly you mm-hmm. um, not in your kind of like sin stricken sort of way, mm-hmm. um, but in, in your most Christ-like way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the, I will like wake up one morning soon and my heart will be flooded with gratitude for this question. Cause I will remember something that someone has said that's been like that. But right now I've got nothing to give you. I'm sorry. That's all good. That's all good. You know, I actually, um, every time I get an email from a student or a friend or a colleague or, or a random scholar and it, it in the moment, it helped my heart. Like it healed my heart. Um, I have a, a, I have a, a folder of just encouraging words. And um, the only way that I remember them is that I collect them. Um, yeah. And it really, it's genuinely on the days when I'm writing and I'm like, I don't know if anyone's ever going to read this or if any of this stuff I'm doing actually matters um, to have these words that speak to my heart in a kind of way that reminds me like why I do what I do and who I am. And, and I have them alongside um, things that John has sent me or the kids have sent me um, just as a reminder of like, no, this is, this is, this is how God made you, right? Like this is the gift. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting. Cause like there, there could be a way of collect, there is a way of collecting compliments. That's like deeply malforming. Yeah. Right? yeah for sure. um, <laughs> well, people say about but, me is these 10 things. <laughs> yeah, but, I but you don't, you can't let that be like rule out. Like, I think one thing that I do is I let suspicion of that uh, rule out a genuine like hearing of truth mm. in complimentary speech. Mm. Um, but what is like truthful complimentary speech is is at some level simply like praise of God. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, gosh. Okay, this is really convicting. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Ryan, it's such a pleasure talking with you today. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you both. So much fun talking to you all. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, wow, I'm, I I know I'm going to go away from this conversation and also like think deeply on many of the things you brought up because like, yeah, I think three days from now, we'd be like, do you remember when Ryan said this? <laughs> so um, thank you so much. Um, and we also like to thank our listener. Thank you for joining us today. 